All right. <clears throat> this is part two of Take the Nations. And this is a kind of a, like an apostolic training, equipping series. Um, and so if you will, you can, uh, if you want, I'm going to do kind of a review here. But if you want to turn to revive your, your Bibles to Daniel 2, you can do that. Lord, we just thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you for your glory. We thank you that you're worthy because by your word, we were made. By you, everything was created and by you, everything is held together. And Father, you created all, you created each person in here. And there, Lord, there's glory on each person. And I just thank you for that, that, that we would see one another according to the spirit and the glory of the image of God that rests on each person. I just pray that you would allow us to see the beauty in one another and to see each other according to uh, what you're saying and speaking. Just thank you for this community, this house. We're asking for you to do um, a divine, a supernatural work in our hearts to transform us from glory to glory, to open up our eyes. We want to see things for the way that they really are. We're asking that you would remove confusion and fog, disillusionment, lies, accusation, shame, condemnation, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, whatever it is, Father, witchcraft. We just bind up all the works of the enemy. We loose the kingdom of heaven. We say that we will, we're building a stronghold in this place for the presence of God, the glory of God. We're asking you, Father, that it would be like a pool of Bethesda, stirred by the angels, and that it would be like an Ezekiel River that goes from here into the city. And that, Lord, this city would be a city set on a hill. Uh, uh, that we would be a light shining in the darkness. And that it would touch nations. That we, the body of Christ, would touch the earth with your glory. All for your glory. We ask you, King of glory, come. And we're praying all of this. That the name of Jesus Christ would be known and magnified and glorified. And that every knee would bow before you, God. We're praying for souls and more souls, saved and set free in Macon. We're praying for Mercer to know you. We're praying for revival on the campuses. We're praying for fires to spread like never before. We're asking for intercessors. We're praying for an army, God. I thank you that in this place is an army of revivalists, of reformers, intercessors, pioneers, watchmen. Thank you, Father, for each person, each gift. Asking you, Holy Spirit, come and equip us and anoint, release fresh outpouring, fresh oil, and fresh fire in Jesus' name. And we could just keep praying, but we're just going to stop. We just love you. <laughs> mm. Yeah, beauty, beautiful, beautiful Jesus. Amen. Okay. So, um, we're going to do kind of a quick review. And, you know, we looked at, we look at this often, um, but you just can't quite understand the full context of our assignment, who we are, mission, except by continually reviewing um, how God made us, why God made us, and what we call the dominion mandate, or the book of Genesis 1. And really, as in, my dad's going to do this in the class, but really the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the most uh, foundational chapters in the Bible to understand because they set the foundation for our worldview. And so um, we looked at the dominion mandate, which you can write this down, but you know, it's in Genesis 1.28, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And we know that that word subdue is a military term. And um, he, he's, he tells them, take dominion over fish, the fish of the sea, birds of the air, every living thing that moves on the earth. So I'd like to summarize this. Um, or the original mi mission statement of humanity under God's leadership is, is this. Through intimacy with God, that is, Adam walked with God in the cool. And that word, that word cool is the word ruach, and it means spirit. So that cool of the day was the Spirit of God, was the Spirit of God moving in the midst of the garden. And Adam walked with God in the Spirit, in the cool of the day, in friendship, intimacy, and communion. So through intimacy with God, walking with Him, create loving family, which is being fruitful and, and multiplying, reproduce yourself, expand the borders of the Garden of Eden, 
which is a picture, a type of heaven on earth. That is, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over every living creature, and, and that is, take dominion. And so last week we looked at your primary calling as a believer is, is to commune with the Lord, is to be with Him. The chief, uh, the chief purpose of man, in, in the first question of the catechism, what is the chief purpose of man? And it's to love God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's beautiful, is that God actually calls us to, um, to, to love him, to be loved by him, and to actually enjoy him. Um, um, there's this quote, John Piper, he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I just love that, it just sums it up, is that God has called us to become inebriated, intoxicated. Your love, um, in the Psalms, your love is better than wine. He's called us to enjoy and partake of God, to, to, to drink Him in, to drink in His presence. So that's your first calling. It's your primary calling. It's not what you do for God. It's who you are to God. You're His son. You're His daughter. He loves you. And, and you're a priest. And your first calling is to be a priest in His courts. A priest went in every day. He goes into the temple, and his job is to minister to the Lord in His presence. Your, your job as a priest unto God is to minister, cultivate his presence, be loved by him. And then you're a king. Your secondary calling is dominion. Out of your priestly role, you're called to take dominion and subdue the earth. You're called to rule the land by serving, by bringing kingdom solutions. A king rules the land using the keys of divine authority that God has given you. So he's not just called you just to walk with him in the garden and just to, to be with him, but he's called you to go into all the earth and to take dominion of the world and subdue it. Okay, and as we know, when sin entered the world, we became, um, we became slaves of sin. We became slaves of Satan. Satan is empowered through agreement. Anytime that we come into an agreement with a lie, we empower the liar. And so the lie is then elevated to a place as if it was a truth, but it's really a lie. And so he, he's try, he, so he comes to them, causes them to question God's word, who God is. They believe a lie. They agree with Satan. And then... The, um, there's a transfer of authority and they take those keys that God said take dominion, they take those keys and they hand them over to Satan. The earth is cursed, creation comes under a curse and our fellowship with God is deeply fragmented and harmed and, and damaged. Okay, so God floods the earth because as we know, man increases, multiplies, fills the earth and then with that, the sinfulness and the darkness of man increases and floods the earth and so God's heart is grieved. And he's sorry that he made the world. He's sorry of, of the condition because it says that man's heart was intent to do evil continually, it says in, in Genesis. And so um, God is, God's heart is, is grieved, so he decides he's going to flood the earth. And, but he calls out a man that he, whom he found favor with, Noah, and tells Noah to build an ark. And, and he's going to save Noah and his family and the animals, two of every kind. Okay, so this is Genesis 7 to 9. Genesis 10 is we have, after the ark, the flood, it says Noah, his three sons, and their wives, they come out of the ark. And then in Genesis 10, we have what's known as the table of nations, which is the first, the, the first 70 descendants of, of Noah's sons form the first 70 nations. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those are Noah's sons. And out of them, God creates nations. Genesis 11 um, is that uh, man comes together, and they're all speaking one common speech, one common language. Man comes together to build a tower that reaches into the heaven. This is a rebellious, demonic, and unified effort of fallen man to build global empire against God. What it reveals is Satan's diabolical strategy. Um, and, and what God does is that he sees the unity that they, that they carry is that if they were able to build that tower, the Lord himself says nothing will be impossible for them. And so God, in response to the, the Tower of Babel, he disperses them. He disperses the nations across the face of the earth and he gives those nations separate languages. And he does that in order to save them. He divides them to save them. And, and so what, what we hit last week is that nations are God's idea. Nations are a counter strategy to Satan's plot to create global empire. And then nation, um, okay, so Genesis 12, we have, um, which is also important, is that God calls Abraham. 
So God creates nations, disperses them, gives them languages, and then Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, which means exalted father, go, leave your country, leave your family, leave your father's house, go to a land I'm going to show you. And he says, because in your seed, this is the promise, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And another, and, and that is reiterated throughout Genesis, is that he's saying, in your seed, Abraham, the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so what, what's happening is that God creates nations, gives them languages, and then in Genesis 12, we see this prophetic, we see the missionary roots of the church, which predate um, the book of Acts. And they go all the way back to Abraham, and God's saying, you're going to, he creates nations, and then he tells Abraham, you're going to take those nations. All, through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That seed, in Galatians, uh, Paul tells us that seed is Christ, and you are of that seed, the same seed of Abraham. You are children of Abraham, and your, your mandate and your role is just like Abraham, which meant exalted father, and then his name was changed to the father of many nations, just like Abraham. God comes to you in the same way, and he's calling you, leave your father's house, leave your country, leave your security, leave, that which, that, uh, leave your, the boundaries and limitations and, and go into a place that I'm going to show you. I'm going to lead you. And it's seeking first the kingdom. And it's going after, um, it's saying that I'm not just going to take Abraham. Abram was not just going to be an average father. God was calling him to great responsibility, to father nations. God comes to us and says, I want you to father nations. I want you to take responsibility for your city, for for." Um, for the nations of the earth to pray for them and, and to take up your missionary roots and to go. So um, God is saying, I'm going to take those nations through a man in his seed. In Acts 3.25, Peter, he declares, you are the sons of Abraham. And then Acts 2, we see at, at Pentecost, which, which means first fruits at the outpouring of the Spirit, we see the birth of the church. And what this is a beautiful picture, I believe, of is, is a reversal of Babel. Is that we see spiritual unity. They're in one place in one accord in, in the Holy Spirit. They're given one new language, a heavenly language. And we see what uh, a convergence of the nations. Is that each person, each people group, they heard that spiritual language in their own native tongue. And so God is almost reversing what he did in the division at Babel. He's reversing it in a spiritual unity with Christ as the center. And he is now releasing upon them supernatural, uh, one place, one accord, one language, one mission, one faith, Lord, baptism, so that nothing will be impossible for them. And 3,000 are saved in a day. They've, and they fill Jerusalem with their teaching, evangelize the known world. And so, in the same way, when we gather, if we gather one, one place, one accord, one language, in that same way, nothing will be impossible for us. And God wants to, there's a scripture that says, can a nation be born in a day? And we see in Acts 2, it can. 3,000 can be saved in a day. But it takes the people of God coming together in one accord. Okay? And then in Acts 2.24, 2, um, Acts 2.24, says, for David did not ascend, this is Peter's first, in Peter's first sermon, or gospel, David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is David, this comes from Samuel, he's repeating a prophecy, and he says, David did not ascend uh, into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord. The Lord, meaning God, Yahweh, a creator, said to my Lord, meaning David's son or descendant, which is Jesus Christ, the Lord said to my Lord, God said to Jesus, sit at my right hand. When Jesus died, uh, crucified, buried, and rose, the Lord said to his Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When the outpouring of the Spirit uh, came on, the, on Pentecost, it was a sign that Jesus has now been exalted to the right hand of the Father. The Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And that sign of the outpouring was also a sign that confirmed now is the hour and the age that God is making the enemies of Jesus his footstool. Because the Lord has said, sit at my right hand. And the affirmation or the confirmation 
of the Lordship of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father was the outpouring of the Spirit. And, and now, what is God doing? He's making out of his enemies, he's going to make a footstool for his son. It's a prophetic statement. We're living in this hour. Um, we're living in the hour, and this is the message today. We're living in the hour of a victorious, glorious, advancing kingdom. Um, and so, what I want to hit on today is, is these, these points. Number one, we are living in the age of the kingdom of God. And number two, his kingdom is victorious, advancing, and will one day have ultimate sovereign triumph over the nations of the earth. And number three, his kingdom is being established through the sons and daughters of God. So if you um, have your Bibles open to Daniel 2, we're going to read. You guys okay? So that's the review. Michaela said not to do a review because last week was supposed to be a review, but I did it anyway because she's in the kids' room. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> she didn't like reviews. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Daniel 2. And this book is, we kind of did a sort of a series on this, but this book is just an incredible book. Um, so Daniel 2 verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams which troubled and disturbed his spirit and interfered with his ability to sleep. Um, before I read on, in the book of Daniel, this incredible book, the central revelation of God is this, There's a, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, the deep and secret things. And as we read this uh, chapter in Daniel 2, what we witness is the God of Israel showcasing that history is going to be his story. God is going to have supreme rule over the kings of the earth. The nations will be his as the saints of the Most High are given possession of the kingdom. And so this really is an epic book. And we see in, in Daniel, God, he turns the hearts of kings like a water course, accomplishing his purposes and even through magicians, enchanters, and sources, through prophets and pagan kings, even in the great city of Babylon, where God's Israel has now been delivered into captivity, even in divine judgment, God still has a divine plan. And that is, there is always a remnant that is preserved for his purposes. God always has an answer. There's always, uh, there, you know, there's 7,000 that have not yet bowed their knee to Baal. There's a remnant, even in, even in the worst of times, God has people hidden. He has his watchmen on the walls. And so we see here, um, Nebuchadnezzar in the second year of his reign, he is, he is burdened, he is taxed and laden with the burdens of ruling a kingdom, probably anxious, worrying about the future of Babylon. Perhaps he thought to himself, how long would my kingdom last? How long will I rule? William Shakespeare wrote, heavy is the head which wears the crown. Here in verse 1 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, he's afflicted and he's shaken with a dream. God is speaking to a pagan king in a terrifying and great mystery for which he cannot understand. And the fact that God so disturbed the heart of a godless king with a dream is evidence of his grace. This wasn't the first time God reached to unbelieving, an unbelieving ruler. The Lord gave two dreams to Pharaoh, Genesis 41, where Joseph interpreted them. He gave a dream to the Gentile Magi who came to worship Jesus in Matthew 2. When he wanted to give a message to the Gentiles, he usually sent a Jewish prophet, Jonah to Nineveh, Amos to the neighboring nations. But here in Daniel, the Lord communicates directly. Why would God trouble Nebuchadnezzar with a dream? Perhaps it's the same reason the Lord sent an evil spirit to Saul. You guys know this verse? In 1 Samuel, there's a, there's a perplexing verse that makes you scratch your head in 1 Samuel 16. And it's when the Lord sent, uh, it's when the Lord's spirit left Saul, and it says 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, the Lord's spirit left Saul, then the Lord sent an evil spirit to Saul that caused him much trouble. Saul's servant said to him, an evil spirit from God is bothering you. 
Give us the command and we will look for someone who can play for you the harp. If the evil spirit from God comes on you, this person will play music for you. Then you will feel better. So, so Saul said to his servants, find someone who plays music well and bring him to me. So if that were today, we would find Blaine and, and you would bring Blaine to your house <laughs> in mercy. Um, but perhaps it's this. It's better to have a, an afflicted spirit, a troubled spirit from God that drives you to him than a false peace and security that drives you to hell, that drives you to destruction. And that the ultimate judgment from God is not being disturbed by God, it's being left alone by God. It's when God hands us over and he no longer is disturbing us. We want to be disturbed by God. And, and so what we see in uh, Daniel 2 is that God is reaching for Nebuchadnezzar. And he's also creating a divine setup, a, a showdown of the powers. And, and so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he's desperate for an answer. And so he does what any king would do and he rallies together his, his advisors. And in Proverbs 25.2 uh, it says, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search it out. And so this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's searching out a matter. To his, to his own, to, uh, it's God's glory to conceal and it's his glory to find it. So verse 2. Then the king gave a command to call the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to, him, to them, I had a dream and my spirit, in, my spirit is troubled and anxious to know the content and meaning of the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. Then the king replied to the Chaldeans, My command is firm and unchangeable. If you do not reveal to me the content of the dream along with its interpretation, you shall be cut into pieces, and your houses shall be made a heap of rubbish. So talk about a bad work environment. Is living in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. But if you, will, but if you tell me the content of the dream along with its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and its interpretation. <laughs> then they answered again, tell the king the dream of his servants and we will explain its interpretation to you. So they're buying time here. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. You have seen that my command to you is firm and irrevocable. If you will not reveal to me the content of the dream, there is but one sentence for you. For you have already prepared lying and corrupt words. And you have agreed together to speak them before me, hoping to declare your delay your execution until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream first, and then I will know with confidence that you can give me its interpretation. Okay, <laughs> so this is good stuff. As his advisors gathered, um, they're being instructed to decode the significance of a dream that's robbed the king of his peace. But this was no routine council meeting among the king and his advisors. That is, as we read, Nebuchadnezzar not only commanded them to interpret the dream, but also to reveal its contents. And if they couldn't, they would be killed with no mercy. Certainly, Nebuchadnezzar was, was not going to risk lying in, lying in corrupt words or misleading in wicked things they would make up just to please him. That is, Nebuchadnezzar had to get down to the truth, and he tested his counselors. The only problem for the counselors and the enchanters was that this dream was God's mystery, and it could only be discovered and decoded by divine understanding. And that is, the wise men of the land, this is how they respond in verse 10. It says, the Chaldeans answered the king, and they said, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king this matter. For no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such a thing as this, of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. So again, God is creating a divine setup, a showcase, a showdown of powers here. Um, further, uh, furthermore, what the king demands is an unusual and difficult thing indeed. No one except the gods can reveal it to the king, and their dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Wise men here are humiliated, disgraced, and out of their own mouths, they condemn their own practice. That is, they are confronted with the limitations of their own power. The stage is set. 
the impossible challenge issued by the king, it opened the way for Daniel to do what the counselors could not. And all throughout the Bible, we see these moments where God steps in and a divine stage is, is created. He exposes the foolishness of the world, the deceptiveness of Satan. This is the face-off. It's the face-off between the God of Elijah and the false prophets of Baal and the Mount Carmel. It's Moses and Aaron and the magicians of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. This is the prophet Jeremiah confronting the false prophet Hananiah. Or it's the Apostle Paul exposing the deception of Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer. Because of this, verse 12, the king was indignant and extremely furious, and he gave a command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out that the wise men were to be killed, and they looked for Daniel and his companions to put them to death. Nebuchadnezzar's decree had to be obeyed. And we see Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, and the chief executioner set out to round up all the king's wise men to slay them. Perhaps now Satan would try to pull victory out of a defeat, willing to sacrifice all of the false prophets in the city of Babylon for the heads of Daniel and his friends. Then Daniel replied with discretion and wisdom. Remember that spirit that was on Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. His, he had an excellent spirit upon him, a spirit of wisdom, understanding. He replied with discretion and wisdom. Jesus said, be as wise as serpents. To Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so harsh and urgent? And then Arioch explained the matter to Daniel. So Daniel went in and he asked the king to appoint a date and give him time so that he might reveal to the king the interpretation of the dream. And this is where it gets good. In verse 17, this is Daniel's response. He returned to his house and he discussed the matters with Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, in order that they might seek compassion from God, the God of heaven regarding this secret. And another translation says that they might seek the mer mercies of God. Thankfully, there was a, a, a friend of God in the company of Nebuchadnezzar in his service Someone that knew how to seek God. That's what we need in this place. We need a company of people, someone that knows how to seek after God, how to seek his mercies. And I love this is that Daniel, he goes into his house and he explains the matters with his friends. And he says, let's seek God together. You know, to, to stay on fire for God, you've got to be around people of fire. There's no way to make it unless you've got, a, you've got a company of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's companions around you that you can rally together and say, we're going to seek God. I don't, I'm, I'm in a crisis, an impossible situation. We're going to seek the mercies of God because there's a God in heaven that reveals mysteries. There's a God, and he's worth pressing into for this. You might not have the answer, but you know someone that does. And we need to seek God like this. And all throughout the book of Daniel, this is what we find. This is why Daniel had an excellent spirit within him. Ten times greater than the enchanters, magicians, and sorcerers is that he was the, a man that was of routine. He was constantly seeking God. All throughout the book, we see he was a man of prayer. And, and also, Daniel knew God had a revelation for him, but it had to be sought after. In verse 19, um, as we read on, there's this, this word, it's the word raz, and it's used eight times in this chapter, and it's the equivalent of this Greek word of mystery. It means a hidden truth revealed only to the initiated. Daniel, he pressed into something. He put his faith to the test, his life on the line. I believe that there's a faithful, faithful routine leads to revelation. Again, you might not have the answer. We might not have the answer to something, but we're going to seek God together. You might not know, not know what to do with the crisis you're in, but you know who to call on. God reveals the matter. He's faithful. And in John 16, Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you. You can't hear them now, but when the Spirit comes, He'll guide you into all truth. 
He won't speak on his own initiative. He'll speak whatever he hears, and he will, he will disclose to you the things to come in the future. This is revelation that's hidden for those that are willing to, to pursue. Um, and Psalm 50 says, call upon, the Lord says, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So let's keep reading. In verse 18, in order that they may seek compassion from God of heaven regarding this secret. So Daniel and his, his companions will not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Verse 19, Revelation revealed. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel, his first response is he blessed the God of heaven. Love this. Daniel verse uh, 2.20, Daniel answered, he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he that changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and greater knowledge to those that have understanding. It is he that reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness. The light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we have requested of you, for you have made known to us the solution to the king's matter. Isn't that beautiful? His first response is to humbly glorify God and bless the Lord for answering their petitions. They asked for wisdom and God granted it. In James 1.5, the um, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives graciously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Revelation was revealed. Their execution was canceled. And I believe in every revelation, God's rule is revealed. And this is what we see. This is the revelation. Um, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will reveal the, the interpretation of his dream. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who can explain to the king the interpretation of the dream. The king said to Babylon, uh, the king said to Daniel, whose name was Bel Belshazzar, Are you able to reveal to me the content of the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, Regarding the mystery about the king which the king has inquired, neither the wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers are able to answer the king. But, everyone say but. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days or the end of days. This was your dream and the vision that appeared in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, as you were lying in your bed, thoughts came into your mind about what will take place in the future. And he that reveals secrets has shown for you, has shown you what will occur. But as for me, this is beautiful. God, Daniel gives God glory. This secret has not been revealed to me because my wisdom is greater than that of any other living man, but in order to make the interpretation known to the king so that you may understand fully the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, and this image, which was large and of surpassed splendor, stood before you, and its appearance was awesome and terrifying. As for the statue, its head was made of fine gold, its breast and arm of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you were looking, a stone was cut without human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, silver, and gold were crushed together, and they became like the chaff from the summer fresh threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that there was not a trace of them that could be found. And the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain, and it filled the earth. Woo! It filled the whole earth. Okay, so in the Amplified, it gives you, it, it lays out for you each of the kingdoms really plainly and clearly here. And we're going to keep reading. This was the dream. Now we will tell you 
the interpretation. You, O king, are the king of earthly kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, strength, and glory. Whatever, and wherever the sons of men dwell, and the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, he has given them into your hand and has made you rule over them all. This is the first kingdom. You, king of Babylon, you are the head of gold. After you will rise another kingdom. The second kingdom is the Medo-Persian kingdom. This kingdom will be inferior to you in a third kingdom, which is Greece under Alexander the Great, which will rule over the earth. Then a fourth kingdom, which is Rome. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron, which crushes things in pieces, it will break and crush all these others. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But there will be in it some of the some of the durability and strength of iron, just as you saw iron mixed with common clay. As the ten toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so some of the kingdom will be strong and another part will be brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with common clay, so they will combine one with another in the seed of men, but they will not merge, even as iron does not mix with clay. In the days of those final kings, uh, the, those final kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Everyone say, a kingdom. Nor will its sovereignty be left for another people, but it will crush and put to end all of these kingdoms, and it will stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone that was cut of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold, the great God has revealed to you to the king, what will take place in the future so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Daniel and his friends respond, seeking God's mercy, and he unlocks the mystery. In the revelation, it revealed his rule in the unfolding of the rest of human history, stretching to the kingdom of God that would be established, stretching to you and I. Here, Daniel told the king, the four parts of the statues repre represented four kings, one following after the other. The Babylonian kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was the first, the second, the Medo-Persian empire, the third was the Greek empire, and finally the fourth kingdom was the Roman empire. And from history we know this is how it happened as it was prophesied. There were four consecutive kingdoms in that region of the world, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman empire. And then Daniel explained the rock in Nebuchadnezzar's dream which crushed those four kingdoms and it grew into a mountain that filled the earth. And it stands forever. I believe that this rock, un untouched, cut without human hands, this rock speaks of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. Come, he came into this world untouched by sinful humanity. This rock, which is Christ, the revelation of Christ, which he said to Peter he would build his church. That rock would crush every other kingdom and it would usher in a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which would stand forever and which would ultimately have victory and triumph in the earth. That is, that God's kingdom would grow as a mountain and that mountain would fill the earth with his glory. Promises like this, um, they speak of a victorious view of the last days. That is, they speak of an emerging global church that is taking nations and seeing the kingdom of heaven fill the earth. And we see promises such as Habakkuk 2.14. I just want to read a couple of these to you. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. God declared to Moses, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Jacob declared, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is an important verse. Until he comes to whom it belongs in the obedience of the nations is his. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Where did Jesus, what tribe did Jesus come out of? The tribe of Judah. That tribe would always hold the royal scepter or ruling power because out of that tribe would come the Messiah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That is, out of the descendants of that tribe, from Jesus would come descendants that would rule on the earth until the, until 
He comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. This is Genesis 49.10. And Psalms 2.8. The Lord said to my Lord, God said to the descendant of David, the son of David, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. That inheritance is what Jesus purchased, the reward of what he paid for, the inheritance of his suffering, his death, burial, and resurrection, is that he has been promised an inheritance of souls, kingdoms, and nations. And he says, in the very ends of the earth is your, as your possession. God means to fulfill his promises to his son and to give him his inheritance. And I want you to see this powerful passage from Isaiah 60. It causes us to envision a future. You can turn there and write this down. Isaiah 60, verse 1. It causes us to envision a future glorious church in the midst of a dark world taking possession and occupying. Isaiah 60, it says, Arise and shine. And we'll say, Arise. Shine. For your light has come. Everyone say, Has. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the deep darkness will cover the earth. Deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. His glory will appear upon you. Nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. So when we read a passage like this, what it's prophesying to us something. It's speaking of a glorious church, an end time church. We, we see, we come to believe the church will rise within a dark world, but that dark world will respond to a glorious church as it arises and shines. And it takes the glory of God that we've been deposited within us and we begin to display that. And it says, nations will come to, your, to her light. What happens when God's people arise? His glory is displayed. God's people arise. His glory is displayed. He rises upon us. His glory appears upon us. What's the result? When the church is emanating the glory of God in the earth, nations come to that light. Nations are waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation itself is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Christ in us, the hope of glory. What, what happens in response to the church emanating God's glory is that the kings come to the brightness of, of that rising. That's the rising of his sons and his daughters. We arise because our light has already come. Jesus has already come into the world. He's already defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he's finished the job. And he's made a public spectacle of the works and the kingdom of darkness. And he's given us now the key of nations. All authority has been granted to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He's giving us a key to take the nations. This is a paradigm that we have to get uh, in our, deep in our DNA because it's going to change the way that we think. When we see a glorious church, we say that deep darkness is on the people. And our response is to let the glory of God, our response in that midst of that deep darkness is to arise and shine rather than run and hide. When we begin to see that, our paradigm, our mentality shifts, and we change the way that we think. We change the way that we live. And especially, it imparts to us faith in the midst of hopelessness. It imparts to us vision to run with. And we see that, I believe Jesus taught us this, to think this way in the parables of the kingdom. Um, Matthew 13, Matthew 13, verse 31, he told them another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like leaven which a woman took and worked it into three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. And in Mark 4.30 it says, He said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? By what parable shall we present it? Jesus said, it's like a mustard seed which was sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it's sown it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. And it forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. This is how Jesus was describing how he was teaching his disciples to think about what he was planting within them. And, and he took um, these humble men, 12, and through them he was going to multiply and re reproduce and take the nations of the earth. Arise and shine, for your light has come. 
Behold, deep darkness covers the earth. You guys think that we're living in a time of deep darkness covering the earth. Where we look out, we see deep darkness upon the people. What is our biblical, what should be our biblical response to that? It's, to, it's time to arise and shine. It's not time to run and to hide. It's time to let the glory of God to draw and pull from our account, which has been given to us, the, inher- the very inheritance and the glory of God. He's made all of it available to us because we're going to need every last ounce of heavenly resource and aid and angel and help because God want, means, he means to take the ends of the earth. And yes, there's going to be war and battle. And, and the enemy, while men slept, so tears among the wheat. But that, that, that seed, this garden's going to grow. And that seed is going to grow. And it's going it's to become the largest tree in the garden. And the birds of the air, the nations, and the kingdoms, and the kings and the kingdoms, they're going to flock, and they're going to flood, and they're going to stream to the church. They're going to stream to a glorious company of people, sons and daughters that know who they are, that know who, who God is, and that know what he's promised to Jesus. We are living in the age of an advancing kingdom. And in Daniel 2, we see, the prophetic, we see this prophecy is that a stone uncut, uh, cut without human hands, that stone, Christ, on this rock, I will build my church. Christ will come and that stone will grow until it, fill, until it filled the whole earth. Amen? Okay, so I think maybe we got halfway through. I'm not going to keep going. Pile drive you. So we're going to stop there. And if you will, just stand up. Um, okay, so... Before we depart, I three weeks ago, I felt like the Lord gave me a word, and I, while I was praying, I had a vision of, um, I won't go into all detail, but I felt like the Lord said, it's time to put your mantle back on. And it just had this vision of this, this picture of, uh, well, it's a funny thing, I don't want to, basically, I got a word about this coat that I was wearing at Morningstar, and someone came up to me, and it was right before, Mikhail and I were about to get, uh, so it was right before we were about to move, we were about to get get married. Matt was with us, and we were transitioning from a house church to moving downtown Macon, moving into a new city, taking a new spot for the for Ahava. And there's this huge transition. This guy I've never seen before in in North Carolina. He comes up to me and he says, and I was wearing this coat back here, and my mom bought me this coat for my birthday because I saw it in some Goodwill or something. I was like, that's a cool coat. I want to. Can you buy? And then. Um, she said, I'm going to get you that coat, but you can't, you can't have it until your birthday. So anyway, I got it my birthday, but I wasn't, I wasn't going to wear it. Uh, I didn't wear it until, until the appropriate time. I felt like this, this Morningstar New Year's Eve conference was going to be the time to, to first wear the coat. So anyway, I took it with me. And, you know, you gotta have your, you got to put your glory, you got to put the glory colors on. So, <laughs> so it's the first time I wore this coat. This guy comes up to me, and he this guy comes up to me and he said, he says, I saw you from across the room and I felt like the Lord said, this coat represents a new mantle. You're moving into a new season and even moving, he prophesied about a new city, moving into a new city, taking on a new mantle and, and he just, um, just nailed us with this crazy prophecy about this transition and we were right on the edge about to take the keys for this new building, about to move, all this stuff, transition was happening. And then Michaela was, oh, okay, so we, yeah, so we were married already. So she was pregnant. <laughs> Man, gotta get. So she was pregnant. And uh, we were married, and she was pregnant. And, anyways, right when he's finished, he looks at, he looks at Michaela and he says, Oh, and you're having a girl. And he was so confident, he just chuckled under his breath. And this guy, it was just, we, you know, we kind of thought he might be an angel. Because he also looked like he lived in his mom's basement. And it was just everything about it was obscure and strange. And, but he just hit it. And, while I was, about three weeks ago, uh, while I was praying, I saw this picture, and I was putting this coat back on, and I felt like the Lord said, it's time to put your mantle on, but I feel like that word is for this house, and I feel like that word is for you, and some of you in this room, is that I'm, I want to declare over you, it's time to put your mantle back on. 
It's time to take the assignment, the anointing, put the glory of God on the thing that you've been called to. Say, God, I'm going to walk in authority. I'm no more delay. And some of you, the mantle's been damaged. There's been things in the mantles for some of you, it's been laying there on the wayside. And I feel like the Lord is coming to you and saying, put your mantle on. Put your authority on. Walk in my authority. Walk in that light. Arise and shine. Walk in obedience. It's time to, it's time to step in. It's time to walk in authority again. And I'm declaring healing to your mantle. And, and while I was, um, I, I kind of gave this word at prayer on Wednesday night. And while, um, so... I got home that night after prayer, and um, Naomi has my first Bible, you know, her first little Bible storybook. And so we were, Michaela, so Naomi comes up, she has, we're going to read a story. So I open up my first Bible storybook, and the first thing it lands on is it's a picture of Elijah's mantle dropping to Elisha. And it's a picture of the mantle in the sky falling. And, the, and I open it up, and I knew it was a confirmation. This is a time that God is releasing mantles. And for some of you, it's your first time to receive one. God's, God's uh, revealing to you who you are and who, whose you are. He's revealing to you the anointing that you're called to walk in, the assignment that he's given you. And he's saying, put on the mantle. And Elijah cried out. And he says, my father, father. And he cried out for a double portion. And as he was being led up by a chariot of fire, Elijah's mantle was dropped in the air, and he picked it up. And so I'm declaring of you, pick up the mantle in Jesus' name. And some of you, it's time to restore that. And there's healing for you because there's been damage. But God wants to heal it. God wants to heal your authority. God wants to heal. heal yeah, God wants to release oil of healing in Jesus' name. Yeah, so I just want you just um, thank you, Father. Just put it on. In your, own, in your own way, say, Lord, I'm putting, I'm putting on your authority. I'm putting on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, praying at all times, praying in the Spirit on all occasions. I'm putting on the armor of God again. I'm putting on the glory in Jesus' name. Just receive it. God, I pray for healing right now. I pray for healing right now, in Jesus' name, to, to come. I'm asking you to heal identity. I'm asking you to heal uh, I know it sounds funny, but I just, I feel like the Lord is healing mantles. And the Lord is healing. Lord, heal. And forgive us, any of us, we just, we, we repent for, for putting it off. Right now, Lord, release it. Release your authority. Release confidence, boldness. We're, I'm asking you for a boldness to come over your people. No more timidity. I'm praying for that Peter. He was, he was timid. He couldn't even, he denied Christ three times. And then under Pentecost flame, he was a roaring lion and he preached and 3,000 were saved. And he said, and they were cut to the heart. Lord, I'm praying for the, that kind of boldness to come on us. That kind of utterance, that kind of confidence that the righteous are as bold as a lion. I'm praying for boldness. I'm praying for confidence. Stand up a little taller. Stand up a little taller because God, he's clothing you. You're his son, you're his daughter, you're his priest, you're his king, you're a holy nation. His chosen possession, his, his workmanship created in Christ for good works. Amen.